a little awkward transition this morning, but that's okay. <laughs> um, we have Kaya, she's going to be leading up the trunk or treat last minute this month, so we're going to get it together, but we need your help. So. Thank you. You can't get rid of me yet, just a little longer, I swear. Um, but this is a great event just for the community. This is a great opportunity for us to open our doors as a church and just leave that little handout saying, hey, you can come on Sundays too and just like welcome our community, bring them here. Um, but this also takes a lot of work from you guys as well as a congregation so we can bring our community here. Uh, next week we'll start donations of candy just so we can have extra treats. Um, if you are decorating your trunk, we will ask that you bring some of your own, but it's really nice to have those donations just to make sure that we have enough and don't run out. And then as well for kids, if you want to, as a like family, bring your kids just to enjoy it. We're gonna have a petting zoo. We're gonna have a blow up obstacle course race, kind of bouncy house. Um, face paint, tons of yard games, and of course, lots of candy, so that's always a hit. Um, and then if you're going to uh, decorate a trunk, we have sign-ups in the back for game leaders as well as the trunks. All you have to do is let me know what, how many cars you're bringing. I don't need to know the decorations or anything like that. Just sign up with your name and number, and that, that'll be great, just so we can have some people to decorate and fun things for our kids to look at. Thank you. Yes, small thing to add, sorry. So last year we didn't do this, but we're gonna add it. We're gonna have a trunk competition <laughs> um, between adults and kids. So if your kids have little electric cars that they can drive, they can decorate those cars as well. And then the public as they come, will, your trunks will automatically be into that raffle of who's the, like, or the competition that people can sign up for and say who the winners of the trunks are. So the best decorated kids and adult trunks will get different gifts. They'll get a prize, so there you go. So I think that'll be fun. We had a huge turnout last year, so it'll be a bigger one this time. Um, regular announcements, we have the Karen Share Ministry. I know last week Lori talked about it. We have the bins over in the corner here by the Care Kit cart. So bring your non-perishable items. That's gonna be a drive that goes from now all the way until November 17th. And then we're starting up a second drive this holiday season for, let's see, I can never say this the right way, Crazy Faith Street Ministries. That's going to be new and gently used um, winter clothing for all ages. There's a bin back there labeled for that as well. So you can start bringing those in um, until, I think that one goes until the 5th of November. So we'll get that one going. And then last thing we have is... We still need more volunteers for our children's ministry. So if that's something that you are interested in, go ahead and give the um, children's ministry email, which is calvarykids at calvarypueblo.com an email, and they can get you connected, get all of that stuff organized. I think that's it. So let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for, for the beautiful weather today. Thank you for the cooler temperatures um, that you're providing for us this week. Thank you so much for the sunshine and everyone who's able to um, gather here today. I ask that you're with Pastor Tim. Use his words to, um, to speak to us and to um, share with us what you have prepared from the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, very quick, if you didn't get my email last week, we are super happy to have Jacob Buss uh, coming on staff as our family pastor. 
we can applaud, but he's not here, so he's not going to hear it. Uh, but really cool is next week, uh, did we make this announcement? No. Next week, he's actually going to be here uh, just for the weekend. He's on leave from Fort Hood, and uh, he wants to get to know as many people as possible, so uh, he may be emailing. Uh, he'll probably email everybody next week just saying hello, and this is a little bit about him. But if you have an opportunity next weekend, maybe to take him out to lunch, take him out to dinner, tour him around Pueblo, uh, his email address was in my um, email last week, and I'll put it in again this week. And reach out to him. He's coming in Friday, and he leaves Monday. And he'll be here Sunday with youth and the kids on Sunday morning. Uh, but a great opportunity for you to just simply get to know him, take him around Pueblo. Uh, it'd be great if he had, a, like, 50 invites and he had to pick and choose. But uh, if you want to invite him out for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, please just do that directly with him. But it'd be great to have him here in that transition. And, again, that transition is going to take until probably... Uh, February or March, and that's okay. We knew that going in, uh, but we firmly believe he's the right candidate uh, in order to come alongside and help us. So, into the message. We are in John chapter 11, and we have been talking about the entirety in the book of John is this truth, this idea, this framework that John presents to us about Christ being the Messiah, the overcoming God King. And we have already seen from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 so far, moments in the life of Christ interacting with us, with people, how he has demonstrated himself to be the Messiah, the one who has come to make us right with God, as well as overcoming as our God King, showing power and majesty from his very first miracle, turning water into wine, to what we're going to be seeing today in chapter 11 as we wrap up chapter 11 and his interaction with us with the story of Lazarus. Now, this is a real common struggle that every one of us have when we read Scripture, especially a story. We read that story, and we kind of distance ourselves from the story, and we could come to the conclusion after reading the story about Lazarus, wow, that was great for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but um, how does that relate to me? What am I supposed to gain from this? And we gain knowledge we gain little details. We, we learn a new thing that we didn't know before. And, and sometimes that can um, really satisfy us if we're learning something new. But it is really hard at times to take a story that many people are familiar with and have it resonate with us. Have it mean something practically and deeply and so importantly that our life changes. And I love that challenge because... I don't have to make up the application. God gives it to us, and all I have to do is kind of remind us, hey, remember what this story is all about. So let me ask that question. What is the story of Lazarus all about? Is it about the power of Christ over life and death? Is it the fact that he can resurrect people? There's, there's importance to that, yes, but that's not the point. I want to remind you that so far in the chapter 11 of John, Jesus has told us twice what the point is. And I want to remind us of that as we look at uh, verse 38 and following. But the very first point of why we have this story of Lazarus, and I think why we have the stories in Scripture in total, is found in verse 4 of chapter 11. So you may have to scroll back, you may have to go back a page, but I'm going to look at two different verses here at, in the beginning of John chapter 11 to help 
remind us what the goal and purpose is of a story like Lazarus. It's not just about the power of the resurrection, although that is immensely satisfying. In verse 3, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And we know that's Lazarus, and we know eventually, later on in the chapter, he dies. But listen to how Jesus responds to that question, and you'll remember this. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus says the whole point here is not really about life and death. It is so that you would see in Christ how glorified, majestic, amazing, beautiful, awesome he is as our Messiah, overcoming God King. It is so that your eyes would be opened afresh, again, as you read this story, how amazing Jesus is. Not just because he has the power over life and death, but because in him he reflects the perfect holiness of God. When we see Christ interacting with humanity, we see God interacting with humanity. We see God elevated to a position of honor and prestige and kingship. And our natural response to that is what? As believers, what is our response to seeing Jesus as king? Worship. It is immediately worship. It is immediately in the presence of God going, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. You are too glorious, too good. And he says, it's okay. You're not just a subject of mine. Your family. Your family. And so Lazarus' illness and his death demonstrates to us our family relationship with Christ and in that family relationship with him, it is one of being amazed at how glorious and beautiful and perfect he is in all of his ways. And he tells us again another purpose and reason why this story is taking place, why it is recorded for us, why it is good and important for us to read it and study it and know it. He says in verse 14, Then Jesus told them plainly, talking to his disciples, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. So that you may believe. The story is written here, recorded here as history, so that you would believe. Believe what? Believe everything about Jesus. Believe everything that Scripture has to say about our Lord and our Savior, that you would believe he is the Messiah, that you would believe that he can overcome your sin, that you would believe he can overcome your past, that he could overcome your fears, that he could overcome your shortcomings, your failures, that he could overcome in your life the power of sin, that he could overcome death itself. Not save you from death, but resurrect you from death like he will with Lazarus so that you may believe. The whole point of this is not to gain new insight into the chapter, but that your heart would be opened in such a way to say, Lord, I want to see and love you and believe in you more and more. Help the times of my doubt. Forgive me for the times of my doubt. Forgive me for my shortcomings and not believing as I should. And so the story is here geared for us for you and for me, that we would have a deeper belief and satisfaction in who Christ is and not have to look elsewhere.
but that we would be satisfied with the Christ revealed in Scripture and that we would believe, that we would believe that he is indeed the Son of God who alone can overcome sin, who will shed his own blood and die upon the cross that we might have life everlasting, that we would believe he's God, that we would believe he's Savior, that we would believe, believe, believe that he is able to do above and beyond what we could possibly think and ask of him. That we would believe that when he says he holds you in the palm of his hand and that nothing can separate you from the love of God, that we would believe it. Even if we don't feel like it at the moment, our belief would overcome our feelings. Belief is stronger than our feelings. Our feelings are vital, they're important, they're part of us. And we've seen Jesus' feeling on display when he found out Lazarus died. What was his response? He cried. He wept. He felt the pain and sorrow of death. He knew what death did. It took life from us and put us in the ground where we would decay. And that was not what God designed. God designed that we would live. And so Christ came as our Redeemer to restore that order. And one day we will rise. One day we will be resurrected and enjoy the glories of heaven physically as well as we do spiritually when we die, even now. So the point behind the entire story, let us remember, is all about belief. Belief that God is who he says he is in Christ and that he reflects the perfect glory of God. That when we read this story, our response is one of belief, that our response is one of worship, that our response is one of awe, how majestic he is. And what has he done that he should receive such belief on our behalf, such worship on our behalf? He tells us in verse 38 of John chapter 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an order, for he has been dead four days. Totally reasonable. Totally understand that. He's been dead. There are, there's not this embalming technique that we have today uh, in, in plenty. They may have had some of that in Egypt, yes, but it took months and months for that to take place. They would generally cover the body in spices and herbs like they did when Christ died, but that was a rarity because that was extremely expensive. So what they did is they just covered up the tomb in a cave with a stone until the body was so decomposed that the smell wouldn't be there anymore. But after four days, Martha goes, if we open that up, I know exactly what's going to hit us immediately. That smell. That smell. Not to mention Lazarus isn't going to look all that good. But verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you, be that if you believed you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Again, notice, Jesus is basically having a prayer to the Father. 
The tomb is opened. And Jesus says, hey, we've had conversations, Father. I know that you hear me, but I want the people around me to know that you hear me as well so that they would have a response. Not a response of applause. Wow, great job. I mean, that was amazing. You resurrected somebody. We've never seen that before. But it was supposed to be a response of belief that people would see the power of God and realize and recognize and acknowledge this is not just a prophet. This is not just someone who can put the Pharisees in their place. This is not someone who has come to give us victory over Rome and establish his own kingdom. This is someone who doesn't do tricks, but commands life to go back into a dead man who's been dead four days and walk out of the tomb so that we would believe he's able to do the same for me and for you. Do you believe that Jesus has the power over death in your own life to bring you back to life on the great and glorious day? Do you believe that he can do that? Because it's not just a story. It's reality. It's truth. And so Jesus does this miracle so that belief would be encouraged so that belief would be part of our fabric that we would take it personally. Now, none of us have met Lazarus. None of us knows him. He's a person in a story. I firmly believe we'll meet him one day and he'll probably be, yeah, I'm done with that. That happened a long time ago. The focus is not me. The focus is the Savior, the Messiah. But Jesus starts out with a prayer honest and to the point, that they may believe that you sent me. So when he had said these things, verse 43, he cried out, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's been quite a buildup for like 40 verses in, in John chapter 11. Because at the beginning of the chapter, we, we heard about Lazarus being sick. We heard about Jesus making a delay. We heard about the point of it is so that the glory of God would be seen through Christ, that people would believe in Christ. But all through this process, we even saw Thomas and his beautiful response to this entire thing was what? <laughs> We're going to die. Thomas, cannot wait to find you again at the end of the book. Because God is going to radically change Thomas from doubt to belief. And the whole point of this story is to turn our doubts to belief. Did he really say, can he really? Can he really forgive you and your list of sins? Can he really bring you peace and all that guilt you carry? Can he rid you of that sorrow and disappointment in your life? the ruined relationships, the painful family memories. Can he truly rescue you from that and bring you peace and joy? Can you believe in him? I have no idea what it would have been like that day to hear Jesus shout into this empty hillside with a cave cut out of it 
with more than one dead person in it, because that's what they did. You died, you go into the cave, the next person rolled a stone out, moved the bones aside, and put the next person in. It was, it was usable, reusable, all the time. I often wonder, what did Lazarus experience? You know, there's an old story that goes in church history that Lazarus, after he was resurrection, resurrected, never smiled again. Never smiled again. Now, I, I don't know if that's true or not. It's just one of those maybe fairy tales uh, come down in church history, one of those wives' tales, but he experienced heaven for four days. And now he was re-resurrected and experienced life again. All of its pain, all of its sorrows, all of its frustrations, seeing people not believe, seeing people want to kill him. I think he smiled again. I do. I think he smiled that day, knowing that he was part of something greater than himself. He was part of reflecting the glory of God. He was part of showing the world how powerful, how real, and how true the Messiah is. Not just in his life, but what could be part of all of our lives. Unbind him and let him go. Now, even though John records for us and Jesus said multiple times, the whole point of this story is so that you'd believe that you'd believe that he is the Messiah, the overcoming God King, that he is the one who reflects the glory of God, that God the Father is indeed the one who sent the Son. He is God's spokesman, his Son. And we believe that even though we didn't see it, even though it's a distant historical event from our perspective in time and space, but there were people who watched him, who heard those words, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. And it's sad to see they did not believe. Verse 45 tells us, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. There's a portion that did see that. There's a portion that acknowledged this is not just a really charismatic leader. There's something different and unique about him, and it's life and death different. Literally life and death different. And they believed in him. They saw his power. They saw his miracle. They saw his compassion. They saw his ability. They acknowledged he is sent from God the Father. He is the Messiah, and they believed in him just like we believe in him. I kind of wish that verse 46 didn't happen, but it did happen and does happen even today. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Pharisees, the council, the religious leaders of the day, had the same problem Thomas did, basically. 
if we acknowledge who he is and we follow who he is, we're all going to die. That's basically what they're saying. Rome's going to come and take away all of our power and ability. But the fact, the fact that they admit in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That's the point. That's the goal the Father has is that when we see the Messiah and we realize this is who he is and what he's done, belief is natural. Belief comes flowing from the heart. Faith is placed on Christ. But they're afraid of that faith being exposed because it might cost them their lives. It might cost them their position of power, rule, and authority within this little kingdom, this little city of Jerusalem that Rome actually runs and owns. They're afraid for what it will do to their status quo tradition. And so they fight against it. They've heard about this. They've seen it. They've witnessed conversations with Jesus themselves. Jesus has been in ministry three years now. They've had multiple interactions. They know his ability to reason through Scripture and be true and counter all of their arguments. And they've seen proof. They've interviewed the man born blind. They've interviewed the man who was lame. They've interviewed people who have seen the miracles who were witness to the miracles, who had the miracles done to them. And they are so staunch, dead. Oh, just... They are so thickly controlled by their own sense of importance and power that they refuse to bend the knee and acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior. All they had to do was bend the knee in belief and say, I am undone, I need you. And their hope would be restored, their joy would be restored, their peace would be restored. They would be at one with the Father. They'd be part of the family. And Jesus would welcome them, not punish them, not put them on the outside and say, well, you have to prove yourself first. No, he'd welcome them in completely as part of the family with no strings attached with forgiveness being theirs. But they were afraid that Rome would come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas acknowledged that for the health of the nation, it's far better that one man would die. And John adds context, meaning, and understanding to that, saying, unbeknownst to Caiaphas at the time, he fulfilled God's prophecy because that one man would die. And not just for the nation, 
of Israel, but for the people scattered abroad. You are one of those people who are scattered abroad. I'm one of those people that John was talking about, that Caiaphas alluded to, that Jesus died for. I was one of those people. You are one of those people. Scattered, lost, alone, by yourself in a ravenous world filled with temptations and wickedness surrounding us. Jesus had you in mind when he woke Lazarus up from the grave. He had you in mind when he gave his own life as a sacrifice for sin. He took your place. That is why we call the sacrifice of Christ a substitutionary atonement. He substituted himself for you and atoned for your sins. The sacrificial lamb. I I need to read that verse 51 and 52 again. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Even with that glorious, beautiful promise and prophecy and personal connection that we have with it, What was their ultimate conclusion? The religious leaders of the day, those that had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, that knew Psalms and Proverbs like the back of their hand, what was their response? How do we kill them? How do we kill them? Not how do we tell the people to believe, how do we submit, how do we praise and follow and worship him ourselves, but how do we kill him? You see, Jesus is such a threat to your personal agenda that people want to kill him because he's a personal threat to your pride, to your sense of purpose. It gets worse. In verse 54 through the end of the chapter, verse 57, we read, Perhaps one of the more terrifying verses that we've come to so far in chapter 11. I think in all of John. And you might say, well, Tim, it's, it's, how can it get any worse than wanting to kill Jesus? Okay, that, that's pretty bad. Instead of faith, I want to kill him. But listen to what verse 54 says. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now think for a moment. Why do I believe that to be a terrifying verse? When killing Jesus, yes, it's a bad verse, but this is far more terrifying than even that. You know what Jesus does in response to that unbelief, to that hatred? He leaves them. Now, why would that be terrifying? 
Jesus to leave their presence. Jesus to go into the wilderness. Why would it be terrifying for Jesus no longer to be found among them? Who else are they going to turn to for eternal life? If Jesus has left their presence and left their audience and left his word and, and just simply moved away from them, they are left to themselves. I cannot find anything more terrifying in Scripture than being left to yourself. To be of your own accord. To trust in your own works. To trust in your own goodness. To trust in yourself. To be without a Savior in your presence. To be alone. That is absolutely terrifying at the moment of death. To know that there is no help beyond that last breath. To be on your own. For Jesus to say, you're on your own. I, I can't think of anything more terrifying than to be on your own. To be without the presence of Scripture leading and guiding you to the feet of Christ to believe in Him. And there are some people that are so arrogant like these religious leaders Believing the lie that they're going to be okay, though. They're really smart. They've done some really good things in this life. And when God asks me, why should I let you into heaven, I can list a thousand reasons why. I have done this and this and this and this. I have given this and this and this and this. I've sacrificed for this and this and this. I've done everything. I've obeyed the law perfectly. Let me into heaven. And the Father will not have to say a word. The accuser, though, will stand up and begin to recite from the moment you were born to the moment of your last breath every sin you've committed. And the words out of the judge's mouth will be, what do you have to say for yourself? Who is your advocate? Where is the sacrifice to be found? Where is the innocent lamb who was slain? Who has taken your place upon the cross? And there will be no sacrifice found. There will be no Savior saying, Father, I took his place. There will be no brother saying, I laid down my life for my friends, and he and she is my friend. You will be alone. The Son walks away from you, and you are by yourself. All of that is packaged in the simple verse that says, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples, no longer interacting, no longer being a presence in which we can fall upon our knees and believe, no longer being the presence of I'm showing you how I can overcome, but letting them to their own devices, to their own opinions, to their own goodness, to their own righteousness, to their own self. 
And they are so arrogant and blind about how good they are that I don't even think they noticed he was gone. Verse 55 through the end of the chapter sets the stage for what's going to be happening in chapter 12. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the fourth one that Jesus encountered during his ministry. And I know a lot has um, taken place in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that record things between chapter 1 and 11 of John. Great place to start to learn even more of the details. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that, he should, that they should let him know, that he should let them know so they might arrest him. They were confirmed and committed to their hatred to Christ. They were so blind in their own arrogance and self-worth and their own self-righteousness and the goodness that they believed they had that they weren't even doing the dirty work themselves. They were, they were leading people into that deception. But you know on the day of judgment, they're not going to be surrounded by crowds doing their own bidding they're going to be alone. Jesus will withdraw his presence from them. Now there's a lot of, there's not a lot of information in scripture about hell, but there's enough to glean from it that it is a terrifying place, not because of unquenchable fire, not because of the physical pain it might bring, but because of its hopelessness, that your condition will never change. You see, we wake up every morning with a little glimmer of hope. Maybe today will be a little bit better. Maybe, maybe I'll get a better report from the doctor. Maybe, maybe the relationship will get better. Maybe the job will get better. Maybe our culture will get better. We live because there's just a glimmer of hope. Maybe tomorrow will be different. Maybe it'll be better. But the Pharisees and those that followed him and those who are self-confident in their own goodness, they will never wake up a day in hell thinking it's going to get better because there is no hope of change. It will never get better. But I don't want to end on a negative note, even though it is vitally important that we come to the realization that this is real. And our response to the reality of this truth is important. Belief is our response. But I want to leave you with something from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 all the way through the end of that chapter. And I'm just going to read this, and I want you to listen to these words of hope that you have. These are your words of hope. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's talking about, hey, we understand what's going on. People die. But when you face the death of a loved one, I don't want you to be full of grief only. I want you to have hope, Paul says. And then tells us why. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even though, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I want you to be encouraged that believing in the Messiah, the overcoming God King, brings you hope. Believing in him and following him, even if the world calls you a fool, even if the world puts you to death for your beliefs, even if the world ridicules you and makes fun of you, even if the world puts you to death for your belief, even if the world has nothing to do with you and you get fired from your job and you're isolated and you feel all alone in this world, even if the world puts you to death for your belief, you are safe. You will die with hope. You will die with an advocate. You will die with the Lord who has the power over life and death and you will rise again when he commands you to come out of that ground. One day he will cry your name. You come forth. And you will rise with a body of perfection and a soul that is reunited with God with all glory and majesty and peace. You can die in peace, knowing that our Lord and Savior has you in the palm of his hand and nothing will separate you from the love of God. Not even death itself or the wickedness of this world or the uncertainty of what tomorrow brings. You are safe. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this glorious song to God.